Now, who knows that currently we are working through the Gospel of Mark. For those of you who don't know, we're working through the Gospel of Mark. Now, this is an exciting Gospel. It's actually the shortest one because Mark is an excitable character. And it's, it's a no-nonsense style of Gospel. And as we're going through it, so that we get a, a sense of continuity before I actually preach from Mark, I'm actually going to read out the section of the chapter that I, I'm bringing my message from this morning so that you've got an overall picture of where we're going. So I'm going to read Mark chapter 3 and verses 20 to 35. One time, it's interesting before I start. It reminds me of those, those movies, you know, one time at band camp or... Perhaps not the best movie to remember. Um, not that I've seen it, of course. Uh, but just the way Mark just throws it in one time, Jesus entered a house. It's not like a specific date or anything. He just needs to know that Jesus went around. One time he entered a house and he went in there and the crowds began to gather again. And soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. Now, can you imagine who's ever been to a house and never found time to eat? It's really hard to do. Perhaps that's just me. Slimmons felt that I am. Soon, so, so when his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. Now the Greek words behind this basically suggest an intervention. They are, they are serious. And then it goes on and says, But the teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. You can see they're a sensible bunch. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan, he asks. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger. Someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. I tell you the truth. All sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. And he told them this because they were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. Your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you, someone said. And Jesus replied, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And then he looked, around, he looked at those around him and said, look, these are my brothers, my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my mother and brother and sister, even if I got them in the wrong order. So we can see there's a couple of different tension points in this passage of Scripture. Jesus seems to be a bit set upon. And there's a tension there because he's actually interacting with four groups of people. And none of them actually are understanding at this point what he's about. His family, including Mary, his mother, misunderstand him but obviously care for him. They've come because they've heard that he's so busy, he's not, ha I mean, 
whose mother does that sound like? You're not looking after yourself. You're not eating properly. And so they've actually come and, and the words used in Mark say they are amazed in the same way that he used amazed in a, in a few passages before to indicate that they were seriously disturbed about what was going on. They weren't amazed in like, wow, it was amazing, like, really? What is happening here? And they have actually come with the purpose, the Greek says, to imprison him. So they've, they've, they're staging a, a real intervention. They're coming to take him home, sit him down, tie him to a chair and make him eat. Because they somehow feel that he's, he's lost his mind. He's actually got so obsessed with this kingdom of God stuff that it's not good for him. Anybody ever had somebody talk to them that way? The second group of people is the crowd. They actually misunderstand him, but they don't care because they can see what he's doing and they just want more of it. They don't understand his message. They don't understand what he's trying to teach them. But they understand that they are seeing miracles. They are seeing demons cast out. They are seeing healings. And they don't understand what's going on, mainly because they don't want to. They're actually there just for the experience. They're excited they're volatile, but they still don't understand him. A, because if you think about it, they're starving him. The, the, the crowd is so packed that he, they're not giving him time to... Anybody who cared or understood what Jesus was doing would eventually say, well, hang on, let's give him five. Let's just back off a bit. He's a, he's a sort of a Snickers. Because <laughs> you're not... <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, the, the, the uh, miracles started to drop off and he started to look like Mr. Bean. So. The third group, we know the third group, that's the religious leaders. They misunderstood him and they were determined to accuse him of something and bring him down. They had nothing in their misunderstanding that had any grace or love in it whatsoever. They misunderstood him because they thought he was bringing a physical revolution to topple their, their lifestyle. And they were determined to stop him at any cost. And the, other, the fourth group of people who misunderstood him were, of course, his disciples. They were, they were clueless with a lot of this stuff. But it didn't matter to them. They'd seen something. That their faith wasn't shaken. They believed in Jesus. They were going to follow Jesus. They didn't necessarily understand him, who's been there. But they knew who Jesus was. And they were going to follow him even though they misunderstood him. And so we've got two stories here. And it's interesting the way the stories are packaged because one story actually cuts right in the middle of the first story. We've got the first story, which is about Jesus' um, relatives. And suddenly in the middle of it, we've got the story about these religious leaders. And if you read it, it looks as though they're in, they're in cahoots together because we read that he's out of his mind and then but the teachers of religious law arrived and said he's possessed by Satan. So it looks a bit like his family and the religious leaders have got together and decided Jesus is mad only they just have slightly different lines of thought under why he's mad. But actually they're totally unrelated stories because you can see that if you take out the story about the teachers of religious law and push the two the, the beginning and the end of that, those verses together, you just get the story of Jesus' parents and, and brothers and sisters who have come to look after him. So why did, why did Mark suddenly cut this dialogue in half and introduce a totally new story? 
I was hoping you'd know. <laughs> well, because the, the level of threat, the level of importance of what's going on here suddenly r- rises dramatically. And the second group of people who come in are actually very dangerous. Their lack of understanding is dangerous to Jesus' ministry and also to themselves. And Jesus feels that he has to interrupt what is going on and address this immediately. And so Jesus starts to talk about the kingdom. And and this part of Mark, he, he actually starts describing what the kingdom of God is like. But interestingly enough, the first thing he does is start to describe Satan's kingdom which I I wouldn't have thought was the greatest lead-in, but Jesus does that. And he talks about the fact that a divided enemy cannot stand. And in verse 23, he, he says, he calls them over, responds with this illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan? A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? So he demolishes their argument by making them look really silly. Like, Satan is going to give me the power to cast out his demons so that I can defeat him. Good one, guys. I mean, that makes real sense. And so, first of all, he shows how desperate they are to discredit him, that they'll make up stories that make absolutely no sense. Even to the crowd outside, they're they're like thinking, who are these people? What's, What's this whole deal about making ridiculous accusations? But Jesus also turns it around. Because in his illustration, he's not just talking about Satan's kingdom. He's actually talking about the kingdom of God as well. Because those lessons that he talks about, as he points out, work in families. Feuding families fall apart. If the kingdom of God, if the family of God is not united, then there's a warning in there that the family of God is just as liable to fall apart if we're not actually united, if we're not actually together, if we're not actually focused on the same goal as the, as the kingdom of darkness, which is a bit of a frightening thing because who knows that the body of Christ in today's world is not actually known particularly for its unity. And so even right back here in the, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's warning about the fact that We have to be careful because if we're getting together, if we're forming a family, if we're building a kingdom, we have to make sure that we have our eyes focused on the king of the kingdom and what's outside the kingdom that we as a family, as an army, as a kingdom are actually focused on instead of looking inwards and fighting among ourselves. I'm glad to see that's never actually happened in the church. The other thing is is to get away with the idea that, that Satan's helpless. He points out here that Satan is actually not stupid. He says that if the enemy is strong, only someone stronger can defeat him. So he's saying, don't be deceived. Satan is strong, but the person who can defeat him is somebody stronger. Who's he talking about? Himself. And so we get some good news here. He says, only someone even stronger in Mark 3.27, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. Jesus is talking about that moment on the cross, when he dies, goes to hell and steals the keys to the kingdom back from the devil. He's talking about what he's going to do in the future. Now, this is really good news if the people had understood it. But we need to understand that, that we are aligned with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ 
is stronger than the devil. Always. There is never an exception. We can be weak, but there is no exception to the strength of Jesus Christ. He then issues a strange warning. This is a weird one. He says, I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. So he's talking about the grace of God, that the grace of God is infinite. But anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. And he told them this because they were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit. Now, there's been a lot of debate about this particular scripture because everybody's, you read that and then you worry that God will forgive me all of my sins except if I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. How do I do that? <laughs> Not because you want to, but you're sort of thinking, what is that? I want to avoid that one like the plague because that, that sounds really dangerous. And we have to remember, this is pre the day of Pentecost. So the Holy Spirit hasn't come down and replaced Jesus as our comforter and our guide and our counsellor. So we, we have to remember that he's talking to a group of people here who don't know the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we, we can actually be assured, and, and you can do some research on this if you like, because this is the only reason I found out, because it doesn't tell you in the text, that it's not, a, it's not a single action. Jesus isn't talking about something that you can do instantly. You know, There's not a magic word that if you say it and the Holy Ghost hears, it's like, I shouldn't have said that. No, I'm damned for eternity. It's actually an action. And, the, and it's a mindset and an attitude. And, and the attitude that he's talking about is something like this. It's people who know the light, who've understood the light of Jesus Christ and walked in the light of Jesus Christ and are even walking in the light of Jesus Christ. They know the Holy Spirit. They know Jesus. They've read the Bible. They know the Word of God. They are living in the Word of God. But at some point, they actively become champions of the darkness, even while they're in the light. Because that's not a single attitude. That's an attitude that develops. It's a hard-hearted attitude that some, some Christians get. They know everything about Jesus, but their hearts become hardened. And even while standing under the grace of Jesus, they turn their back on him and act as though they're champions of the darkness. That's what he's talking about. It's an, it's a, an attitude that people can actually build into their lives. It's an attitude of resistance against the light they're standing in. And they will stand there and pretend that they're actually in the dark. And they will pretend that the darkness has more power than the light. And that attitude will see them never get into heaven. Not because God refuses it, but nobody with that attitude can get into heaven. Because what gets you into heaven? Good works, nice clothes, coming to church on Sunday, knowing the scriptures backwards, forwards and sideways? No. It's the actual acceptance that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Saviour and that we actually walk in his footsteps on the path he has determined for us. If we waver from that as a lifestyle, as an attitude, then we've actually built our own fence. We've blocked the, our own road and we've stopped our access into heaven. So when it says it's a sin with eternal consequences, it's actually consequences that we've brought on ourselves. And it takes an attitude and a continuing attitude. You can't do it, but there's no magic word. You can't just say a rude word to the Holy Spirit and, and that's it. So 
It's, it's an interesting warning, but it's, we can avoid it. And so we don't, we don't get to see what they respond, how they respond to that. I mean, probably because they just slunk away with their tails between their legs, because I think he got them pretty good. But he, he then continues abruptly to the story with his family. And we see in Mark 3.31 where his mother and brothers have come to see him. They send for him. And he suddenly says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And looks around at the, pe- the crowd around him and says, these are my brothers and mo- mother and brothers. I really have trouble with that one. Anyone who does my will is my brother and sister and mother. And Jesus is not bagging his family here. I mean, I've heard a lot of Christians say, well, he's saying that, you know, your family doesn't matter. The family of God matters. Jesus is not saying, my family doesn't matter. But what he's actually saying is that, and this is where his family's misunderstood him. They still think of him as Jesus, their their brother or their son or, or their cousin or whatever it is. But Jesus is trying to get people to understand that he loves his family. But his mission here on earth is to expand his family. And he is saying right here, I love my brother. I love my mum. But my mission here, what I am doing here, is actually to get people to understand that you are my brother. You are my sister. My mother's not here. Um, And that everybody who follows him actually becomes part of the family of God. And that's a very powerful statement. And so... He's actually trying to clear up another misunderstanding here by saying, okay, family's great, but it's actually only a small part of your world. The family of God is actually worldwide. We are members of a family that is massive, that we have cousins and and brothers and sisters in places we're never going to visit. But we need to realize that they are our brothers and our sisters, that we are part of something. We are aligned with the kingdom of God and they are with us. They are our brothers and sisters. We do not turn on them. No matter how different they look, speak or act compared to us. And so what he's actually done here in this passage of scripture is he's given us three things. And I love love what, what Jesus brings us out of scripture. He's brought us inspiration. He's brought us encouragement and he's given us a warning. The inspiration is he shows without doubt that Jesus has crushed Satan. He hasn't died on the cross yet, but already the kingdom of darkness is defeated. The kingdom of light has won. Who's happy about that? That, That's really exciting news, isn't it? Kingdom of light has won. Yeah, I saw it on TV last week. Big deal. Come on! This This is the reason for our existence. Jesus died on the cross so that we could win. Because he is stronger than the devil. We have a Lord and Saviour who is the ultimate authority on all things on earth, in heaven, whatever. The encouragement is, guess what? He's made us part of that family. He has given us his power. We are encouraged not that we just have to sit here and say, Dear Jesus, do it all. We're actually here to say, Dear Jesus, thank you for the power to do it in your name. Thank you that we can actually walk out into the world. We can make a difference. We are God's hands and feet and mouthpiece here on this earth. So we need to be careful what our hands and feet and our mouth are doing. Because we're actually, 
we're actually part of this. This isn't some passive um, theatre experience where we've watched the movie, God is in charge, and we politely clap and then leave the theatre thinking, whoa, wasn't that great? Isn't Jesus wonderful? We need to walk out of that theatre thinking, wow, we have just been given something here that we can take out and use in the blinding light of day outside the movie theatre. That we are empowered. We have an ability to change this world because we are associated with Jesus Christ himself. And the third thing, of course, is there's always a warning that just don't get too full of yourself that you think you can do it on your own. The kingdom of darkness does have power. And if we separate ourselves from the kingdom of light, it can get to us. I mean, it's not in the Bible, but I would suggest that a warning like, don't be stupid, would actually work just as well. We just say that, be inspired because Jesus has beaten the devil. Be encouraged because he has given us his power and enabled us to do the same and more than he has. But just don't be stupid. You can write that down as point three. And so we can see that Mark is continuing in his gospel here to ex- expand our view of the character of Jesus Christ. And he's, he's talked so far about Jesus' personal character. But now he's just beginning to touch on the fact that it's not just Jesus. It's actually about the kingdom of God. We actually don't belong just to, to Jesus. There's a, there's a kingdom. There's a structure in place that we are all active parts of that we has, he has brought us together, not just so that we can sit next to each other and passively think, yeah. like Brendan's a bit annoyed because Kirsty's top is rubbing on his arm. And so it's like, yeah. Next time, next time I come to church, I'm going to sit a bit further away. It's, it's not about passively you know, sitting there, hearing the word of God, thinking about whether we're comfortable or not, wondering how, whether the coffee's going to be good this morning or or what you've got to do after, you, after you've finished church because this is just going on so long that you... Come on, people, it's only five past 11. I've got hours of stuff here. But he's expanding. And next week, he's actually going to start talking... And I'm, this is a spoiler, but not enough so that you won't come next week, okay? Of course, you could read ahead. Or... I'm not sure I approve of that. Reading the Bible. It's only for special people. Read ahead all you like. But it's getting exciting because once we understand that we're part of God's kingdom, it empowers us. And once we understand that there's a simple way of getting into God, God's kingdom, I think it encourages us. Can I, can I just ask everybody to close their eyes right, right here and now? Because the kingdom... I mean, we've all got passports here. And although we tend to have countries that aren't kingdoms anymore, our passports determine what countries we belong to. And they give us rights and privileges in those countries. They enable us to travel between countries. That They mark us as citizens. And in most countries at a certain age, you have to apply for a passport. And when it comes to the kingdom of God, God's kingdom is is a welcoming kingdom that welcomes anybody. But you've still got to have a passport. And the application for a passport in the kingdom of heaven is ridiculously simple. There are no rubber stamps. There are no holograms to make sure that you haven't cheated. 
It's an invitation only kingdom. But that invitation is extended to everybody. And I don't know everybody here. I don't know the state of everybody's heart. And so I want to issue an invitation on behalf of my Lord Jesus Christ for anybody who would like a passport to the kingdom of God. And all it, all it requires, and I'm happy to help you with this, is that you pray a prayer that basically says, Lord Jesus, I accept your invitation. I want to become a part of your kingdom. I put aside all the other affiliations I've had with earthly kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness, whatever I might have been into. I put them aside. I turn from my old ways and I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I apply to join the kingdom of God. And that's it. That starts you on a walk. There's a bit of a, uh, a citizenship program that helps us understand what we've done in that first step. But taking that first step is incredibly important. So while nobody's looking around, if you're somebody who has never done that, who's never said, I want to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Saviour, in a moment I'm going to ask you to pop your hand up so that I can see it and you can put it straight down again. Or if you've done that in the past, you've, you might have even been attending church, but you've drifted away, you've drifted back into old habits and you feel perhaps it's time that you said, okay, I want to I reapply for my citizenship. I want to change my life and actually become part of the kingdom of God once again. I'm going to ask you to do exactly the same thing. Just lift your hand so I can see it. I'll acknowledge it and you can pop it down again. So are we ready? While every eye is closed, every head bowed, if you're here and you would like to ask Jesus Christ into your life, to become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, can I just ask you to raise your hand so that I can see it right now and we will pray that prayer together. Anyone at all. Lift it high so I can see it. Awesome. Can I get you to open your eyes? Wiggle your shoulders a bit. Just so you don't lose your balance. Stand to your feet. I'm not sure whether wiggling your shoulders helps. but I want us to make a declaration this morning. Something to hold in our hearts for the week ahead. I want you to repeat after me. Lord, I promise that I will act on the inspiration of your victory over the devil. I also promise to act on the encouragement that I have in my spirit and in my heart that I am part of the family of God. I have the power to change my world. I have the power to change others in the image of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray and I declare that I will not be stupid. In Jesus' name. Amen.